invite you all to stand with me in the reading of the scripture this morning. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and if not, the words will be on the screen. This continues our series on the books of Thessalonians, the letters that Paul wrote to the small church, probably the earliest documents in the New Testament, as we've been studying it this summer. May God bless the reading of the word. Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being together, gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? And you know what is now restraining him so that he may be revealed when his time comes. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the workings of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false, so that all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. But... We must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. For this purpose, he called you through our proclamation of the good news so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm, And hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope, comfort your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So, when we hear this passage read aloud or we read it ourselves, there is one major question I'm guessing that most of us have, and it is what about the lawless one? Anyone? It's almost like the lawless one is a bad actor in a play, and he kind of just takes all the attention, and you miss the plot. 
And when we read a passage like this, we really want to know exactly what Paul's talking about and the exact timeline of the future that he's mentioning. And you can start to do some work on it and maybe watch some preachers on YouTube and you can really go down the rabbit hole, my friends. You can get so lost in the weeds, especially about this man of lawlessness or this lawless one, that you can miss the whole point of this chapter in the letter Paul wrote. So, to make sure we don't do this, before we begin studying this text today, because that's what we're going to do, I have two things to say. And the first thing is, this is thing one, we have to remember that Paul has a relationship, a personal relationship, with the people he's writing to. He's their pastor. And because he's their pastor, his purpose in this letter is to pastor and not predict. Yes, he does speak, and he's going to speak about the future a bit, but the intent, the primary purpose of this letter and this section is primarily to pastor not to give a blow-by-blow roadmap of the future. Because we have to remember that the purpose of Holy Scripture, the purpose of the Bible, is not to be some magic eight ball that answers all our questions about the future. A lot of people use it as this. And throughout human history, since Jesus, people have predicted the return of Christ over and over again because they've been using the Bible in this wrong way. But the purpose of the Bible is to tell us about who God is and how God wants to be in relationship with us through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Relationship. And so the whole book, the whole book of the Bible and the whole of each of the books is written in the context of relationships, God's relationship with God's people, Paul's relationship with this church in Thessalonica. And in our task of interpretation, we interpret it in the context of relationships too. My relationship as your local pastor. Because I know you. Because for the church and for God, relationships matter. Christian relationships have gone back all the way to Jesus and even before that, right? This is really important. Relationships, thing one. But here's thing two. Very different. This particular text is really hard to interpret. You know, did you, were you like, oh, I totally understand that? <laughs> you think it's hard in English. It's really hard in Greek. There is grammatical funkiness, incomplete sentences, and what's called textual variance, which means the earliest manuscripts that we have of this are a little bit different from each other in some of the stuff. Um, and that does not mean in any ways that the text is untrustworthy. It doesn't change the reality of the resurrection or the teachings of Jesus and Paul, but it does make it a little bit difficult to understand some of the details. So one Pauline scholar describes 2 Thessalonians 2 as definitely the most frustrating passage in all of Paul's letters. And if we go back to the 4th century, St. Augustine said, I frankly confess that the meaning of this completely escapes me. I don't think, I think we can find meaning in it, and we will today, but obviously it's been frustrating. So thing one, relationships. Thing two, really hard text. And so with these things in mind, let's begin working through this passage together, remembering the two things, relationships, pastoring, not predicting, and hard text. 
So if you do have a Bible with you, uh, and I just recommend the practice of bringing a hard copy Bible to church, and then you can write notes in it, and then later when you go back and read it, you're like, oh, I learned that. So it's a really helpful spiritual practice. So you might want to jot in your Bible if you have one with you, or take notes and then later write it in your Bible. Um, This whole passage, verses 1 through 17, is a complete section. In most English Bibles, it cuts it up with a different heading. That's distracting. Cross that heading out. That's not part of the inspired word of God. Um, Verses 1 through 17 are a whole section, and Paul makes his arguments in five parts. So we're going to look at the five parts. So first section, the first part of this single argument, are verses 1 and 2. And we read, As to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we beg you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as though from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord is already here. So this is the crisis that Paul is addressing. This is a small church in Thessalonica, similar to our size here today, probably. They are super scared, they're shaken in mind and alarmed because they've heard that the day of the Lord has already happened and they have missed it. There's some false teacher or false prophet who has been communicating the church with the church, either speaking publicly there or writing a letter pretending to be Paul, saying the day of the Lord has happened and you suckers missed it. And so they're kind of shaken up and afraid. Now, maybe you're like, okay, but uh, I don't know what the day of the Lord is. So this is what the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord is a phrase used throughout Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament. The day of the Lord is a time in the future when Jesus will return, he will raise the dead, he will judge everyone, and he will finish the kingdom that he started on his time on earth. And when he finishes the kingdom, that means that heaven, which we understand as God's space, and earth, which is human space, will again become unified, and God will make all things new. This is the day of the Lord. And it is really good news for Christians who are being persecuted. Also, it is bad news for those who are not following the way of truth. But somehow this church has somehow come to believe the false teachers saying that Jesus has already come back. They've missed the day of the Lord, and because of this, they are really scared and really frightened. This is the crisis. So in the second part, which is the longest, most distracting section in this, verses 3 through 12, Paul is going to correct their misunderstanding. He's going to say, no, no, no. The day of the Lord hasn't happened yet, and this is why, and and this is the part where we can get lost, but I am going to read it again, and then we'll talk about it, or I'll talk about it, and you'll listen. So, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one destined for destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, declaring himself to be God. Do you not remember that I told you these things when I was still with you? And you know what is now restraining him so that he may be revealed when his time comes. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but only until the one who now restrains it is removed. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will destroy with the breath of his mouth, annihilating him by the manifestation of his coming. 
The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion, leading them to believe what is false, so that all who have not believed the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness will be condemned. That is a huge second part. So first, it's obvious that Paul has already taught them this stuff before. He mentions it two times. He says, remember I was telling you these things? Uh, You remember this, don't you? And to sum it up, this is Paul's correction. The day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. That false prophet teacher was wrong. And it's not going to happen until two things happen first. First, there's there's going to be a rebellion, and the lawless one will be revealed. Well, we're like, that doesn't really help us. But um, what is this rebellion, you might ask? Paul doesn't explain it. And there is tons of biblical scholarship written trying to use the rest of the Bible to discern what the rebellion is. But I, I think the best scholarship on this text points to this being a rebellion against the teachings of the Christian faith, rebellion against God and the truth of Christ, and rebellion against the participation in God's kingdom that we're all invited to. One thing that needs to happen first. The second thing is that the lawless one must be revealed before the day of the Lord. So this lawless one, sometimes it's called the man of lawlessness, um, is is a future antichrist figure, and it looks a lot like some of the ancient kings who would set themselves up in temples. This would happen, and it happened in the Jewish temple, claiming to be gods. The the man of lawlessness can kind of freak us out. It can sound, sound scary, Um, and oppressive. But one of the things that's really important that Paul does here is is that two times when he's talking about the lawless one, he reminds us of that individual's destiny. We see in verse 3. This is the NIV. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. They go together. And then again in verse 8. The lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the splendor of his coming. You notice that this, the lawless one is revealed. That's a passive verb. And in scripture, often when there's a passive verb, it means God does it. So how is the lawless one revealed? Who reveals him? God does. And then what happens to him? Well, he's destined for destruction. Jesus is going to blow him over with the breath of his mouth. And it's really not hard for Jesus to destroy the man of lawlessness, right? It doesn't take an army of angels or a complicated incantation. It just takes the breath of Jesus' mouth and the splendor of his glorious coming, like blowing a dandelion. The lawless one can be destroyed with the breath of Jesus. Not a battle. Poof, it's gone. You have no power here, be gone. That's what Jesus says to the lawless one. But right now, Paul writes, the lawless one is being restrained. So you also don't have to worry right now. And he, the, the Thessalonians know what's restraining him. We don't. Too bad. Paul says, you know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed when his time comes. Again, there's tons of ink spilled on who or what the restrainer is. It could be a who or what grammatically. We don't really know. Uh, One option that, that I find very strong based on the rest of scripture is that 
What is restraining the lawless one is God's plan that the good news of the story of Jesus be carried to all people, all nations, before the day of the Lord. This hadn't been done yet for the Thessalonians. It hasn't been done yet for now. And so the things that precede the day of the Lord, the rebellion from faith and the appearance of the lawless one, have not yet been revealed because the rescue story of Jesus hasn't yet been proclaimed to the whole world. Then we get to verses 8 and 9. The coming of the lawless one is apparent in the working of the Satan, who uses all power, signs, lying wonders, and every kind of wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Here we learn that this lawless one, this character, is connected to the Satan. I say the Satan because Satan is not a, a proper name. It's, it's, a, it's a noun, like any job or any not proper noun. It's a common noun. So, but note the Satan and the lawless one are only successful. They're only successful on those who have refused to love the truth and so be saved. So neither this easily blown over lawless character nor his boss, the Satan, lead the way. The Satan and his co-worker can only work in the lives of people who have already refused to love the truth and so be saved. These are those who've rebelled. And for those who have rebelled, the day of the Lord will not be a good day. But it will be a good day for the Thessalonians, which is why they were looking forward to it. So this is Paul's correction to the Thessalonians, whose crisis, we missed the day of the Lord, and then he says, no, no, you didn't. <laughs> the, the rebellion hasn't happened yet. The man of lawlessness hasn't yet been revealed. Don't worry, you haven't missed it. That's what all this part says. So then we get to the third part of this section, which is the comfort. Paul writes, We must always give thanks for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. For this purpose, he called you through our proclamation of the good news so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't this good news after that next part? Paul is comforting the church, reminding them of what God has done already, that God loves them, beloved by the Lord. He chose them, chosen. He has been called. All these things, loved, chosen, called, are things that God does and has done in the lives of the Thessalonians. Paul is saying, I know you're afraid that the day of the Lord has already come and you missed it, but you won't miss it. You're beloved by the Lord. God chose you. He called you. And he called you so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the beginning of the service, Pastor Lars read John chapter 1, and we have seen his glory about Jesus. We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the same glory. This is a glory that God wants to share with God's people. This is called glorification. So we are saved into sanctification. Paul writes that. And also, can you move to the next slide that says um, comfort? Thanks, Caleb. Also, we're sanctified. That means being made holy by God. Sanctification is a, you know, a big $10 theology word, but it's really part of all our call in participating in the work of God. 
It's part of the story of salvation in our lives. It's not something that just happens in one instant. It's our walk with Jesus along which God forms us to look more and more like God in whose image we're made. Sanctification has to do with obedience. It has to do with our disposition, with joy, with wonder, with listening to the Spirit and walking in the will and path of God for our own lives. That's sanctification. It's a continual process throughout our walk with Christ in which the Holy Spirit works to form believers into the image of Christ. And then later on, glorification is the end goal of every Christian's life journey. This will happen after the resurrection. And this is the glorification of Christ, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are called to share in. This is a huge call and comfort. We're going to share in this glory of Jesus. And so, after Paul has named the crisis, after he's corrected, after he's comforted them, Paul then gives them a command. Fourth part, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter, not someone else's letter, our letter. And this is in contrast to verse 2, where the believers are shaken out of their mind by this letter someone else wrote pretending to be Paul. But he's saying, hey, don't be shaken. Stand stand firm. Don't listen to those new prophecies. Stand firm in what I've taught you and what I've written you. And then, finally, Paul offers, like any good pastor in a tricky situation, a, a closing prayer, lifting it up to the Lord. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself And God, our Father, who loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and good hope, comfort your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and deed and word. May God comfort and strengthen you in good works, Paul writes. You can take a breath. That's the end of the chapter. That's the end of the five-part argument that Paul offers. Crisis. This is good to remember, maybe. Crisis. um, Correction. Comfort, command, and closing prayer. So part of my job as a pastor in relationship with you all isn't just to discern what the text is saying and interpret it. It's to interpret it in our relationship in the time we're living right now. So as I approached this text, I wondered and prayed, what does the Holy Spirit have to say to us right now, August 2020, Hinsdale, Illinois, in the season of pandemic, all kinds of division, racial conflicts, riots, looting, and a derecho storm on Monday is crazy, right? And I think in this time, there's a lot of opportunity for us to listen to teachers or prophets say, it's the day of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord. People have told me this. But I'm going to say to you, friends, the Christian church has been around for over 2,000 years, and we don't know. People have been predicting the return of Christ for years and years, at least since 500. And the Thessalonians thought that Jesus was going to return any day. And Jesus is going to return. Jesus is going to return. But the Bible is not a roadmap for us to make a timeline. We can trust that Jesus will return and pray into it and then let it go to God because Paul's purpose in writing this was not to give a timeline. It was to comfort and it was to give a command about how to live right now in our relationship with Jesus. So 
Understanding that this is not instruction about a timeline, but comfort in a command. I will offer us the same comfort that Paul offered the Thessalonians, which was remember your identity in Christ. You are people who are called, who are beloved, who are chosen. And rather than letting our minds go to worst-case scenarios or wondering about this timeline or thinking about weird esoteric teachings or conspiracy theories, set your mind on Christ. Set your mind on God the Father who chose you to be the sons and daughters, to be the brothers and sisters of Jesus. That is what needs to run through our mind in all this chaos. Who God has called us to be as individuals and as a community. Because even though this is a very divided time, the church is called to be unified. And my friends, we will not be unified in politics. We will not be unified in our opinions about school opening. But you know what we will be unified on? Our identity as sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And from that, our mission to the world will flow, which is what Paul does here. After naming their identities, Paul gives them a command, and this is also in the closing prayer. And it is to be strengthened in good work. This is related to his teaching on sanctification. This is related to our call. Because maybe we don't know the timeline, but I can tell you God's will. And that it's God's story goes out to all the world and that we become holy. That's God's will for us, church. That's the will we can focus on and conform our own hearts to. That's God's plan. Be holy. Be sanctified. Now, I, you know, you can, is sanctification a new word? Like it's fine for some of you, maybe, maybe no. Sometimes we think, okay, I'm going to really work hard on being sanctified. And that is good. But sanctification is a mystery of the Christian faith. So it is 100% our cooperation and 100% the Spirit's work in our life. It is both. It's 200%, which, you know, that doesn't make any sense at all. But you have to cooperate with the Spirit. I was thinking of a, a metaphor for sanctification, and the weird thing, the only weird thing I could come up with was, it's like if you're carrying someone who's about your own physical size. You can carry them, but they have to cooperate. You know what I'm saying? They have to, like, tuck their feet in and hold on and can't be dead weight, right? So... We have to cooperate with the Spirit's work of sanctification in our lives. And I was thinking this week, right, what does that look like? What does that look like for us to cooperate with the Spirit in our sanctification, to to pursue good works and words? This is simple things first, like kindness and gentleness and self-control. Maybe not writing a comment back on social media right? Maybe reaching out to someone you haven't spoken to in a while, offering words of peace. We we can really be different people at this time, church. I asked uh, Courtney, our youth director, who knows the youth way better than I do and and has a relationship with the youth, and I said, you know, what, what good works would you recommend for the youth? And so, students, this is what Courtney said. She said, very specifically, use your phone less because it It keeps you from doing other good works, and it causes you to base your identity on your online reputation. And I would add, not on your identity as a son and daughter of God. She said, make an effort to grow in relationships with other Christians at church. You have to make an effort these days. We cannot just sit sit passively by. It's not going to happen organically. 
Courtney also said it is a good work to stop smoking weed. So I'm just going to put that out there. And so for everyone else, all the grown-ups and everyone, it is easy to find comfort during trying times in the wrong things. Because we're looking for comfort, we're looking to be distracted. That could be unholy sexual practices, over-drinking, obsessive media practices, and then emotional states of fear and anger. These are not actions of sanctified Christians, my friends. We're all sinners. We've all done it. But to participate in our sanctification, you need to confess this to Jesus and to other people who can walk alongside you. This is one way we participate in our sanctification. Because Paul's prayer is that Jesus will strengthen us in every good deed and word. And this is our response to these trying times. This is our call from God. As I was pondering this message a few weeks ago, knowing I had this really tricky passage and I was thinking about good works, and I knew I was going to say some of the things I just said, but I thought, man, God, what's an example of a specific good work going on? And I, I know we can all think of things. But in this moment of prayer, I received an email from another Paul, not the Apostle Paul, that would be freaky, Uh, Paul Brush, who's a member of our church, and he goes to the Saturday night service. Paul's a history teacher in Chicago public schools, and some of the students that he's known and spent time with have spent time in prison, and he's learned from them some of the condition of the inmates, and um, It's burdened his heart. He's wondered what he can do as a son of God uh, to help the situation. So he wrote to me. He's starting a nonprofit. This is what I want to do with this nonprofit. Help people by improving their living conditions. I want to ensure that they are cool in the hot summer and warm in the winter. I want to see every correctional facility in Illinois have a full-time hygienist and dentist to maintain healthy teeth and mouths. Currently, only if they have pain can they seek assistance. I want to see them learn financial skills so that they can make it on the outside when they reenter society. I want upstanding men and women outside of prison to mentor and explore friendships with their counterparts in jail and prison. There are many other dreams for Illinois correctional facilities, but I can't make it happen without you. This is an opportunity for good works from us. We heard some others donating computers. We continue to have a relationship with Chopra. Focus on the good work God has called you to do, not in any other prophecies. We know the will of God. What a blessing that is. So don't be distracted by that other stuff. Jesus is going to come back. We don't know when. But in our tradition, the covenant tradition, we respond to the good news of Jesus with the good work and word born out of our identity in Christ, our identity as beloved sons and daughters of God. So do not be shaken. Don't be shaken. Stand firm. So I'd like to end with Paul's prayer, and I invite you to read it aloud with me. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's stand.